0: The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.
1: Well, hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I am Capital Weekly Editor-in-Chief Rich Eisen, uh, joined, as always, by my colleague, my partner in crime, Tim Foster. Tim, how are you doing today? I'm well, Rich. Thanks. Good. That's that's not an insignificant thing. You know, we're right at the beginning as we record this of the big atmospheric river, next superstorm, what have you. So uh here's hoping nothing happens, like any power outages or anything like that. Hopefully, all you are well as we're listening today. Every time we have weather like this, I think about issues like our homelessness problems around the Sacramento area. And so I am I'm thrilled today because we're joined by somebody who has as uh, invested in solving that issue as anybody I know, long uh, longtime figure here in Sacramento, current mayor of Sacramento, former Senate pro tem, his honor, Daryl Steinberg. Uh, Daryl, so great to have you here on the Capital Weekly Podcast. How are you doing this fine I'm afternoon? I'm doing
2: great, Rich and Tim. Thanks so much for having me. It, uh, it sort of brings back memories of old times uh, <laughs> when used to sit down with the Capital Weekly team uh, quite often when I was at the State House. uh The years go fast, but it's really good to be back with you.
1: Yeah, I think old is the operative word every time I look in yes. the mirror. That's definitely, uh, I'm feeling it more and more. Well, look, I, I introed with uh, talking a little bit about homelessness, which we know has a tremendous connection to mental health. And I know mental health has been a, a passion of yours for a very long time. We know about Prop 63, many other... Um, efforts on your behalf, the Steinberg Institute. So let me start there really quickly. Uh, On the day we're recording this, we just had a new story come out today on our site about the struggles of getting Senate Bill 43. For those of you who may not be completely up to speed on Senate Bill 43, that was Susan Senator, Susan uh, talamantis Eggman's bill from last year that made um, a slight but significant change to the definition of uh, gravely disabled under the Lanterman Petrus Short Act of 1967. If you follow anything to do with Capital Weekly, you know we've talked about this bill a lot. It has been the defining mental health law in California for uh, well since 1967. Um, It has its detractors, it has its fans. Um, Certainly changing it has been a challenge so SB 43 was the first, I would say, significant change to the to the bill in quite a long time. So now we're we're getting to the implementation phase, which requires the counties uh to do some work. And uh the gist of our story today was that it's proving to be a heavy lift. And so uh Daryl, you were quoted in the story. Um, in fact, I wanna I really want to read a quote from you that I think maybe sets the stage here a little bit, which is. You can write the most impressive laws, but their success is dependent not only on the words of the law itself, but more importantly, how it is implemented. It's not a binary choice. We need to get started. So let's talk about that there, because that is, uh, that has been a problem. The laws have been changed, but, um, you know, counties are not really on board with this yet. Give me some thoughts here on, you know, maybe what is the holdup? I mean, you've really been at the very highest levels of state government. Now you're back at, 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 you started in local government, now you're back in local government. You know, you've seen it all from all sides here. Give us the your perspective on, on where we're at with this situation.
2: Well, of course. I mean, first of all, uh, a couple of thoughts about the law itself, and then also uh, the difference between making law and actually implementing it. And I think they're two separate but related conversations with regard to Senator Eggman's law, SB 43. It provides um, a basis for counties, for cities, for family members of people suffering from severe mental illness to make a case that in the appropriate circumstances, an individual should be required to accept treatment under the conservatorship law that exists in California and I think most people feel in California that the pendulum has swung too far where it's too hard for uh, family members especially to be able to get help for their loved ones Um, just even when they're is years of experience and evidence that the that the individual and there are tens of thousands of them that they cannot care for themselves that they're a danger to themselves and sometimes a danger to others and so senator eggman's bill is an attempt to shift the pendulum i think more towards common sense to say that if somebody is is living with a terrible physical and or mental impairments out on the streets of California, and it's not just homelessness, but those are the most clear and obvious examples, that even if they can present before a judge in a moment that they say they are okay, if the history shows that they are not okay, then the law will allow the, the family, the county to be able to actually get help for the person. And I think that is the right change. What I sometimes feel though, about the whole mental health debate, and this is not, I mean, I'm a strong supporter of SB 43, is that sometimes the debate over involuntary treatment and commitment um, is way too large. In other words, I, I want us to spend as much time talking about debating and pushing for the society through its government through its county government through its health plans to actually provide the services to people because involuntary treatment and commitment should be used sparingly at the end at the very very end where where society family members the governments have tried everything to get the person help but the critics though i disagree with them in terms of the ultimate, uh, the, the ultimate balance, I do think they have a point, which is how do we let people get to that state in the first place? And as much as we should compel people who can't care for themselves and are at real danger to accept treatment, maybe we also ought to have a debate about the legal obligation of society through its governments to provide the treatment in the first place. And that maybe leads then to, um, you know, to the other issue, which is the difference between making a law and actually implementing it. Because the more I've been doing this now for over thirty years, and um, I've I've seen it from, as you say from the state level and the local level, and I will tell you the problem to me is not as much um, whether or not we have written the right laws. I I think we've done all a pretty good job. The issue is performance and implementation. Some call it accountability. There is no obligation for the counties, for example, to to focus their attention on the people who are the sickest of the sick out on our streets. And that's why Prop 1 is so important, because it requires that 30% of the Mental Health Services Act money, my Prop 63 from 2004 be used for housing people with severe mental illness or substance abuse. 35% for the coin of the realm wraparound services. And and government too often takes too long at all levels to get the money out and to actually, uh, and, and so that people can actually see its impact. And so, Um, accountability, implementation, and performance is really important. And so back to SB 43, I think the frustration that the governor expressed, and I back him up completely on this, is that the counties should not be making a binary decision to say, or a unilateral decision, excuse me, to say, we're going to delay the implementation of SB 43 for one year or two years. Why not get started I mean, if you can't build it all out, it takes two years to build out a, a more robust SB 43 implementation program, that's fine. You wanna do it right, but why not start with 25 people in each county? I mean, I, 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 I could point to the 25 people in Sacramento that would qualify for the SB 43 treatment. And so this is, this is not good in my view. When we, when we come to a conclusion that says, well, it's all or nothing, you either implement the program now, which is not what this SB 43 requires, by the way, or, or the governor or anybody who's demanding, or you delay it you know, laterally for a couple of years, let's just get started. And, and let, let's, let's, and by the way, by getting started, when it becomes a permanent program, you'll have then will then have had the benefit of learning the lessons from what worked well and, and what needs to be improved.
1: Well, and, and I really want to follow up because you, you noted the governor's frustration and it's true. I mean, he said specifically, you know, the state's done its job. It's time for the counties to do their job. And I know locals don't like to be told what to do by the state any more than the state likes to be told what to do by the feds. But, you know, it does seem like the need right now. I mean, if you talk to anybody around the state of California, it really doesn't matter what town they're in, the issues around homelessness and mental health are are right at the top of their list of things, You know, along with the economy and education. I mean, I think we're all wanting to see a solution here. So there's a real sense of frustration.
2: Well, there there is a couple of things. Number one, the public is right to be frustrated But, you know, the question comes up all the time. Why should we vote for Prop 1 when all the other money that the governor and the legislature and the locals have have invested has not solved the problem? And I don't think that's a fair question, because, in fact, as a result of the governor's leadership and the legislature stepping up, we've gotten 71,000 people off the streets of California over the last half decade or so. Um, In Sacramento, we've gotten 17,000 people off the streets. We did between 2017 and 2022 people are becoming homeless at a faster rate than we're getting people off the streets. And so, you know, it's hard in politics and in life, I guess, to argue uh, how much worse, something could be but for the aggressive intervention but it happens to be true and in in sacramento i know it's starting to get better um we're starting to see cleaner streets it's it's um some of the large encampments are being broken up and we're getting as many people into shelter and services as, as we can we still have of course uh, a a long way to go and, and so it's not um We just now need to take what we know works and we need to focus the dollars and we need to make sure that there's genuine accountability. And again, Prop 1 provides that accountability by requiring that 65% of the money be spent on both housing and wraparound services in ways that um, are happening throughout California, but maybe uh, for sure in a more diffuse way. Um, And so, We get people's frustrations, Um, but we just have to continue working and staying with this. And so I want to make another point, if I might, which is that, you know, mental health and substance abuse are really key pieces of this problem. But we are now living in an era where high housing prices, COVID, um, a lot of economic uncertainty, a lot of people... Unemployed or underemployed. What's really happening out there is that thousands of people have gone from fragile and housed in inexpensive apartments or living with family members, you know, making it barely, but making it, to fragile and unhoused. And yes, people have underlying uh, mental health and substance abuse conditions that, by the way, get much worse when you're on the street, but it's not it's, it, this is fundamentally economic in nature. It's about systemic poverty. Housing first may be an unfortunate term because it becomes divisive. Well, what do you mean housing or, or treatment? And the truth is it's both for people. You cannot help somebody with mental health or substance abuse issues if they're living under a bridge. People need safe and secure housing and shelter, permanent housing. Ultimately, and that's the way. Then you're able to provide the wraparound of care. For- well, there. Are, let
1: me let me ask. Let me follow up here just really quickly because ah. one of the other points that our reporter Sigrid Bothan made in our in our story today was the disjointed. I think uh, I don't think that's the word she used. That's the word I'm going to use here. Uh, maze of services in California. I think one of the real, you know challenges for for especially for family members who have got someone in their family who's going through this situation, is it's not that there's a lack of services or even a lack of money, but there's often a a real lack of communication between the counties, as an example, or connection between all those services so that there can be a cohesive treatment to get somebody out of this situation. How do we fix that? How do we address that so that the, the machine works better When it when it has plenty of fuel, but maybe doesn't fire on all the cylinders the same.
2: I think it is actually what all of our future work is about. Once we pass Prop 1, we will then have all the tools in place, both on the voluntary and on the involuntary side. And then the work will be to end the fragmentation that exists in the mental health system today. I think it is fair, unfortunately, to say that we have at least a half dozen separate mental health systems in California. You've got people who have private health insurance, you have Medicaid, you have, uh, you have the public system, the mental health services act, you've got the forensic system, people who are, uh, who are, are, cannot, are not ready to stand trial because of um, their underlying severe mental illness. You have school-based services um, that, that have their own requirements, and I'm missing one or two. And the problem for the individual who's in crisis or the family member is that these different systems have different requirements, and some provide very little help at all. I mean, commercial insurance, we have parity in name, but private insurance isn't funding preventative mental health care. They're not funding the wraparound model that uh, for people who have severe and chronic mental health conditions. And what we, what we need to move towards, if not single payer, because I'm not saying government should run the whole thing, but at least a unified payment system. An individual ought to be able to show up at a clinic at either a crisis clinic or for preventative care, be able to get the help that they need, um, get the case management if that's what they need to navigate their way through the system. And then who pays for it ought to be figured out in the back office? That's really where we need to go here. Because as long as we have this fragmentation and counties are pointing fingers at cities and cities at counties and health plans at each other and at counties, then we're going to continue to have that kind of frustration. We now have money. We now have laws that get us at least closer to requiring one or more of these systems to provide care and treatment to people. But we need more unification. If not consolidation, at least unification around not having the consumer or his or her family worrying about their particular status, insurance or otherwise, get the help that they need outside of a hospital emergency room, and then have somebody else, us, figure out how to pay for it.
0: Do you know, is there anyone in the legislature or elsewhere that's actually got a proposal that would do that? Or that would make that process? I think the
2: administration, I know everybody is thinking about it, you know, but it's not, Tim, a single bill, right? It it is systems change, just like I give, again, the administration a lot of credit. Look, I want to say something about this governor. And, you know, uh, there's no perfect law. But, One of the reasons why the Mental Health Services Act over the 20 years has done many great things, $31 billion helped a lot of people, but maybe not lived up to its original promise, is because there was no executive leadership taking on the issue of mental health. There was no state governor articulating outcomes we want to see out of that $3 billion a year investment, much less the rest of the mental health system. Governor Newsom has leaned in not only on the money side, but in really working to try to fix these systems. CalAIM is another example. Now we've got Medicaid that is eligible to pay for a lot of things that the Mental Health Services Act has been paying for. More of the whatever it takes approach. And work the work in terms of systems reform is not done. I really believe the next stage is unification of funding streams, consolidation of funding streams, so that for the person in the family, it's much simpler to access care and treatment. Now, there's another piece that needs to be mentioned, and that is we have a major workforce shortage. And Prop 1 will fund um, several percent of Proposition 1 will go into incentivizing and training uh the next generation of of behavioral health workforce in california it's really really important
1: well darrell i tell you one thing i will say regardless of what side of the political fence you're on or 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 social fence or what have you i i have to say i admire the governor and, and mayor bass yourself others who have taken this problem on, because as you know, when you take on a problem in our modern polarized world, you now own it. And this is a really hard one to own because there's no quick, fast solution, which as you'll, I'm sure acknowledge, a lot of people in the political realm want a fast, quick solution because it looks good on campus. We have have a
2: situation in my county, as you know, it's been well reported, where a district attorney has sued the city, you know, uh, Forget the fact that when I started, the city was funding less than 100 beds. We're now at over 1,300 a night. Forget the fact that we forged a partnership agreement, one of a kind with the County of Sacramento. Forget the fact that we're enforcing our law. Forget the fact that the city is not a health and human services agency, doesn't do mental health and substance abuse. We've leaned in like other big city mayors and other cities like never before. But that's an example of what I call cotton candy politics. Um, it's a sugar high. Um, you know, get tough. And we're enforcing the law. These encampments are unacceptable. But any politician who demagogues this thing and then doesn't actually present a real alternative, a real solution, that's that's not what um, we need. What we need are, uh, are changes in the law, like Proposition 1. And then we need to be thinking about how we create a less fragmented and unified system and and how we um, hold everybody accountable to even better results.
1: Well, you know, I I wanna go ahead and wrap this up, but we can't let you go without talking about the transition and power in the Senate that's coming Uh, again. We're recording this a few days before it happens Uh, about the time people are able to hear this. So it should be about the same day that that transition happens. Um, we're we're going to be seeing Tony Atkins hand the gavel over to uh, uh, Mike McGuire in the Senate. You were the Senate pro tem. Um, so you have a pretty good insight as to the opportunities and the challenges of that job. You, you also were in leadership at a time when there were some pretty significant budget holes to fill. Um, historic historic at that time. Certainly. Uh Also, you know, we you and I have many conversations about water and and water deals and that kind of a thing, just as examples of some of the really significant issues that came before the legislature during your time there. So I I think you're as well qualified as anybody to offer uh, Senator McGuire some some thoughts on (laughs) on what might uh, he might be expecting, uh, like I say, in terms of challenges and opportunities. What can you share with him and by proxy with us on that? That well, I've loved
2: all my political leadership roles, but none more than being president of the California State Senate, because it is a tremendous opportunity in, in several regards. Number one, um, you have the ability to shape broad state policy. Um, you obviously are the lead negotiator, uh, one of two, uh, the assembly speaker as well with the governor in terms of what uh, a state budget looks like, how to shape all the public policy, the hundreds of bills. Uh, it is a tremendous responsibility. But you also have another opportunity, and that is to pick one or two or three, at most areas of public policy that need oxygen, that maybe the administration is not as focused on, maybe the other house is not as focused on. You have the power for a limited period of time to be able to push issues that um, really matter. For me, even though I presided over these terrible deficits, and that was primarily my job to help the state recover, and the state, in fact, did recover. When when we had one or two good years, I pushed the idea of bringing back career education to California high schools and got a billion-dollar trust fund. We did alternatives to emergency rooms for people in Psychiatric crisis. Um, I did the major bill on uh, requiring insurance companies to cover behavioral therapy for kids with autism, a whole host of things. And so I say to every leader who um, gets this opportunity here's the one thing that you know intellectually, but you only really know it when you're at the other end of it, that it in fact ends and it goes fast. And, you know, I was the center of the center of the legislature for 6 years and then december 1 of 2014 i was out of office and it's not that people forgot me but man it moved right on as it should because <laughs> it's not about the person it's about the the it's about the democracy and it's about the senate itself and so use that time you have whether it's 2 years 4 years 6 years to actually focus on some things that that others might not focus on, and make a big impact because you'll remember a lot of votes, you'll remember a lot of the stories and and, and the friends that you make. But it goes very fast, and and it's a lot of power uh, to be used in good ways to to change an issue or or change a lot of lives in um, in, in really important ways.
0: Well. You talked about this happening fast, and I'm wondering if you can give us some insights about the actual transition period. I mean, last year we saw a very dramatic and unique transition in the in the Assembly. Uh, it does not seem like there was uh, that sort of uh, no. trouble in the Senate between uh, Senator McGuire and Senator Atkins. But there with between staffing changes and you know new committees etc. can you talk about that actual yeah. moment the, the transition process itself what's that well, like on the inside
2: well first of all i mean you're right the the transition in the assembly was different because it was contentious and i guess i don't know if you call it hostile but it was not a, a smooth handoff um most of the transitions that i've seen are smooth but they all have the same They're all different and they're all the same. And they're all the same in this way. The person who holds the office wants to stay a little bit or a lot longer. And the person who's coming in (laughs) wants to take over as quickly as possible. And that's just human nature. Um, And and it always works out, or at least most of the time it, it, it works out in a way that puts the institution first I'll tell you who it's hardest for, in my opinion, and that is the staff. You know, the members all have their jobs and they all adapt, and you know, they play their different angles or support one over the other, and that's fine. But it's the staff because uh, it's hard on people who um, whose livelihoods sometimes depend upon, you know, the whims of politics and of of politicians, and so. you know, and, and 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 then it's not just a change in leadership, it's term limits itself when uh, term out members finally end their tenure. And so I think it's really important that we acknowledge, recognize and respect the institution, not only by and through the members, but by and through the staff, because um, they provide a lot of expertise, a lot of stability and the transition I think can often be hardest on them. It's not, you know, every transition I've been through, and I've been through several of them. I was the incoming pro-tem, I was the outgoing pro-tem. They were both fine, but they had their moments of tension, of awkwardness, really around that human dynamic that um, it's hard for the person leaving to know that they're leaving. And it's and it's um, and the person who's coming in. Man, they want to get started on on what they work so hard to try to achieve.
1: Well, Daryl, you mentioned transitions. You're coming to another one yourself. Uh, I think as we're speaking, there's a debate going on for whoever's going to be following you into the mayor's office. Um, not to put you on the spot, but, you know, I'm a reporter. That's my job. I put yes. people on the spot. So I'll ask you what what's next for Daryl Steinberg? Well, I have
2: not been asked that question in the last half hour. So I appreciate it. it. Um, No, I, you know, Rich, I don't know. I have several options. Um, You know, I I could run for statewide office at some point. Um, I'm eligible to be appointed to the bench if the governor, if the governor would consider that, or I could decide that I want to do something completely different. Um, other than what I've done for 30 plus years. And I'm actually open to it. Um, the idea of, of living life a little bit differently. Uh, I've loved every minute of what I've done, and yet it has its cost in terms of the other parts of your life. So, you know, I love writing. I love, I've taught. Uh, I um, I have a lot to offer. I have my mental health institute, as, as you mentioned. And um I'm going to do something, either directly uh, in the public realm, or I'm going to do something that can conti- that, that represents the continuation of service of some kind. I just don't know yet, and and I um, have always, you know, been really steadfastly. Well, this is the next step, right? And now I'm giving myself at 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 uh, at this stage of my life just a little bit of time and breathing room to say. I don't have to figure it out right away. Something good.
1: Well, I think you've earned that. Uh, And I, I, I inadvertently lied. I didn't mean to lie. I have actually one more question for you. This is the most important thing though, that I'm going to ask you. And uh, I, you know, there's a lot of gravity here. So let's, Oh, I can treat this with all the seriousness that it deserves. Give me a Super Bowl prediction. I know (laughs) you're a big 49ers fan. I'm a big
2: 49er fan. You know, I, 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 you get a gut about these things, right? I, and my gut really tells me the 49ers are going to win this game. They really are. They haven't played great in the, you know, in the two playoff games, except for the second half, uh, obviously last Sunday. But I just, and Kansas City's been up and down all year, right? And Mahomes is great. But I really think the 49ers are going to rise to the occasion. They have the talent. They have all the offensive weapons. The defense has to play a little bit better, especially against uh, the run. Um, I think they're gonna rise to it. I think they're gonna win it. I think it's their so t- you
1: you are you are saying here in front of the entire world that all of these conspiracy theories about about Taylor and Kelsey and uh <laughs> Preordained and rigged, it's all just bunk. You're saying, no way, man. The 49ers going to upset that apple cart. We're going to hold to this.
2: I wish Taylor and Kelsey all the best. I think it's a great side story, but you know what? It's the Niners' time. We have not won the Super Bowl in 30, almost 30 years. And, uh, I don't know. I'm feeling good. And if I'm wrong, then, uh, I wear a Kansas City Chief hat uh, a week from Monday.
1: Uh oh! Uh oh! A gauntlet has been thrown <laughs> down. A, a self-imposed dare. Well,
0: Rich, you really threw me. I thought you were going to ask if the K, if the A's were going to come to Sacramento to, Ooh. you know, play for a while. You, you, you have to
1: it. know though, as a as a lifetime A's fan, I've made no, no, I've never tried to hide my my blinding allegiance, except in the last year they have managed to run me off so i know i intentionally did not ask the mayor that question because i don't think i even want to know the answer to that one right now right you know i the only answer i want to hear is that they're staying in oakland and they're going to have a new owner but (laughs) but but daryl actually the fair fair point we went through that here with the kings with yes with an ownership that needed to go too so we maybe we have some hope right
2: well I've been very clear in all my uh, public comments that I think the A should stay in Oakland. I absolutely do, because no city should lose a team. And if the die is cast and the Las Vegas decision has been made and they, and they need a temporary home for three years, I think Sacramento, uh, Major League Baseball would be very lucky to uh, if they chose Sacramento, because this community loves its teams we've got an incredible fan base and we we could show as mlb thinks about expansion in future years that sacramento um ought to be a top choice so my conscience is clear because i have been very clear that the a should stay in oakland but we we you know I, I don't. Uh, I, I did not become major league major league baseball commissioner, so I don't have any power <laughs> with anyone.
1: against all my suggestions. I, <laughs> I I was advocating strongly in 2014 that that should be your next role, and uh, I, I I'm just going to go on on a limb and say you'd have been better at it than Rob Manfred. But you yeah. know, that's my very deep personal bias. I admit it. I've never tried to hide it. I I don't write about sports, so I feel I can say that with with, with a clear conscience as well. And Tim, damn you, you dragged me into it when I was trying to avoid it. Man, you, you got get... me
0: talking about sports, which is like the saddest thing. <laughs> and
2: my my clear, transparent answer to your question or inquiry is no comment.
1: <laughs> well, if the comments that you did have are, are, are well-received, we appreciate them greatly. Uh, Mayor Steinberg, thank you so much. Uh, best of luck in all your future endeavors. We really appreciate you coming on. Uh, today to talk about this very, very important issue. Uh, I encourage everybody, if you haven't seen the story t- that we uh, have up today, please check it out. It's uh, it's a very compelling tale of uh, some, some of the challenges that people with family uh, suffering from mental, mental health issues uh, go through here. Uh, trying to get help for their for their family members. So I really urge you to to check it out. Hey, and, uh, hey
2: Rich, can I make one more, just, and Tim, one more sure? before yeah. we go? Because I think it's, oh, yeah. I, I didn't say it and I'd like to, which is that um, when we did, this is why I have hope. When we did the Mental Health Services Act 20 years ago, very few people were paying attention. It was an initiative that flew right under the radar and we passed it. Uh, but no, no one was talking about mental health. 20 years later, this has now become the public health priority, top priority that I advocated and others advocated, it it should have always been. And now that attention is being paid and the right changes are beginning to be made, if we continue to pay attention, then we will fix this broken system once and for all and make sure people can, that, that they get help early they get the help they need and deserve, but I have a lot of hope because finally, mental health, behavioral health is having its day.
1: Uh, that's a great note to end on, and and that is true. That is true. Those of us who covered Prop sixty three, um, you know, we, we know it's true. So, Mayor Daryl Sleinberg, thank you so much again. Really appreciate you coming on. Um, we'll we'll uh, I'll think of you on Super Bowl Sunday. We'll see. We'll I'll I'll. I'll <laughs> You know, you know me. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jinx myself here. I'm gonna make everybody mad at me in Sacramento. But you know, I'm a Raiders fan, so well, it's gonna be painful to watch, watch all this happen in, uh, in, uh, in Vegas. But it is what it is. So
2: it's always next year.
1: all, yeah. Well, we've been saying that for a long time. You know. <laughs> anyway, thanks,
2: Bear. Bye, you guys. Bye, Tim. Bye, Rich. Thank you.
1: Well, I'll stick around with us. We'll be back with who had the worst week in California politics in just a minute. Worst week,
0: worst week, worst week.
1: It looked there for a bit like we were maybe only going to have one possible candidate, but we actually have a few folks who are not having good weeks here in California politics. Um, but let's start with uh, let's start with the um, front running Republican candidate for the United States Senate seat that has been vacated by the death of um, Dianne Feinstein, Steve Garvey. Big headline, of course, is he's raised about $600,000, which sounds like a lot of money, except it's really not uh, in, in a race like this where the other candidates have raised millions. And he also, uh, there's a big story in the LA Times uh, just today, I think it was today, about um, essentially we, those of us of a certain age remember all of the travails he had with, in his family life, uh, divorcing his first wife, getting two other women pregnant, then marrying a third one. He's got seven kids, about half of whom have gone to the Times or have told the Times that he's been pretty much an absentee father who wouldn't have anything to do with them, and sometimes outside of only court appearances. So that, I don't know, as a father myself, that that's something I have to say really strikes a really horrible note in me. So uh, I'm sure there are others who felt the same way. What do you think, Tim?
0: I agree. This is not what you want. It's particularly not what you want when you've released a press, you know, done your press release, promoting your good fundraising. I guess he had uh, raised as much in January as he had in the entire last quarter of 2023 theory. That's good news. You want to promote that. And then instead uh, that gets stepped on by a story by the, from the LA times uh, about being, you know, this quote unquote family man, with family values uh, has been an absentee father or so his, so his kids say, certainly not. We want, I, again, I'm in the, apparently the minority of white dudes at my age. Uh I had never heard of Steve Garvey. I didn't know about his, his foibles. <laughs> I didn't also didn't know that he was even on the Dodgers. I didn't know anything about Mr. Garvey uh, until he announced for his Senate seat. So you know, is this going to really change someone's opinion that was already thinking about voting for him? My gut feeling is no. I mean, God forbid, if you're going to worry about family values, you're never going to vote for Donald Trump, who has, right. you know, I think bragged about cheating on all but one of his wives. Uh So, you know, I'm not sure that the people that are drawn to Mr. Garvey uh, are going to be horrified by this. Maybe. I mean, it's not what you want, but will it Will it lose him a single vote? Maybe his kids. may it'll lose, you know.
1: Honestly, it's old news in some ways um, because, you know, his, all of this came out a long time ago that he, you know, all the all the things with, you know, getting multiple women pregnant and, you know, all, all of the things that he said at that time, which, you know, again, he, he had aspirations into politics at that time that detonated that for a long time. Um, so none of that is is anything remotely new. You know, I think it's also fair though to note that since then he's really not done a whole lot, apparently, according to his children, to have even a relationship with them. Uh, but I'm with you. I doubt it's gonna hurt him that much.
0: Is it possible that this helps him? People are like, this guy's a player. I like him. <laughs>
1: I don't think it will help him here. I mean, this is California. It's a different thing. I just don't think it's going to hurt him that much because, again, I think, I think, again, and we're so polarized. I think at the end of the day, I think, as Paul Mitchell said a few shows back, you know, um, he might get into the runoff and then there's, you know, you probably have a greater chance of seeing Elvis at the gas station than seeing him actually win a general election. So, uh, you know, I don't know that it's that big of a deal. Um, I think if we look at one of our other candidates down in Los Angeles again, the former sheriff of the city of Los Angeles. Tell us about him, Tim, because I think he's having a bad week, too.
0: I think so. And I think this actually could have more of an impact on the election, uh, on the race. And that is the former Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva was deemed ineligible for rehire after officials uh, found evidence or what they believed to be evidence that he had discriminated against uh, Inspector General Max Huntsman. This is according to a story in the LA Times, again, by Kerry uh, Blackinger. Um, I mean, Villanueva, I don't think, ever had a quote-unquote squeaky clean uh, record, and I don't believe that voters were expecting that of him. However, having a do not rehire in your file is not great. And I mean, I know as a person who has looked for many jobs in my life, I'm really glad I don't have a do not rehire anywhere in my history. And it just really underscores that he has not always been a straight shooter. Yeah.
1: He very controversial figure uh, again, love him. You love him or hate him. Um, but certainly if you're looking to get your old job back, that was not good news for him. Um, speaking of somebody
0: who. Uh, well, he's not looking to get his old job back. He's running for a uh, County supervisor, but oh, that's right. I do feel like um I do feel like voters in there who may not know all that much about him, maybe they will, because he's a you know kind of a household name down there, I guess. But I could see how you look at this and you go, your own department won't rehire you. You're on the do not rehire list. And again, it's not like uh the, the sheriff's department is full of woke uh you know liberal softies. It's like that's a bunch of hard-nosed characters who are not easily offended, let's say. And the fact that they have have put a do not hire uh, note in there tells you something, at least I I think so. Yeah. Well,
1: one of the other uh, job-related worst week candidates, and probably our winner, I'd say probably our winner. Um, we've been talking a lot about city council races and members of late, and we have a very Berkeley-esque thing to do here. I guess Kate Harrison, who is the representative for Berkeley's District 4. Uh, I guess she was first elected about seven years ago. She announced her resignation from the council in the middle of a council meeting. Uh, she walked out of the meeting, uh, declined to comment, but she said that her uh, her resignation, which is effective on the 15th, I love the quote. She said, I'd like to say it's uh, to spend time with my family, that old trope, right? But that's not the reason nor am I being harassed, which was a reference to another council member in Berkeley, District 7 uh, Rep. Uh, I believe it's Rigel Robinson's resignation when he said that, uh, and he also ended his campaign for mayor because he said he was being harassed, his family's being harassed. She said, uh, I'm not being harassed. Uh, but she said, Berkeley's processes are broken, and I cannot in good conscience continue to serve on this body. So she left, though she did make a point of saying her mayoral mayoral campaign will continue on. And maybe in a co-worst week uh, uh, candidate here, uh, the crowd cheered for the current mayor, uh, Jesse, I hope I'm saying this right, Ara Gwen's resignation as well. So after, after uh, Harrison left, the crowd was chanting for the current mayor to resign, too. So... More fireworks around Berkeley. It sounds like they're, everybody is really having a bad week
0: in Berkeley City Council politics. Yeah, well, I mean, that whole People's Park thing has been ugly. You know what? That's been ugly really as long as I can remember. I remember that being, there was still drama around that in the 80s when I was a kid. Uh, and it continues. And, you know, uh, from what I understand, they will be, will be building housing there. So that will ostensibly be the end of it. Uh, but yeah, Berkeley... Uh, long history of very loud city politics.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we would expect
0: nothing less of Berkeley, right? Yeah. And I would say if I had to give somebody the worst week, probably her, because I would also say, again, um, I don't live in Berkeley. I don't know how you, as a Berkeley voter, turn around and elect Kate Robinson mayor when she basically walked out of her city council seat. I just don't see that happening. So I think she just torpedoed her own mayoral campaign along with her city council seat. Well, time will tell, but that would be my uh, take on this.
1: Time will tell. We'll definitely, time will definitely tell. Well, uh, Tim, thanks again. And again, I want to say thanks to uh, Sacramento mayor and former California Senate pro Tem Daryl Steinberg for joining us today to talk about healthcare, homelessness, and uh, the, Challenges and opportunities for the incoming new Senate pro tem, like Senator Mark McGuire. That'll be happening about the time you're listening to this. So
0: Tim, it's been an action packed show. Uh, We will sign off now and we'll see you next week. Yeah. And I want to remind our listeners that if you have not already done so, uh, go on, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, leave us a good review. It helps uh, kind of game the algorithm so other people will find the show. And we're all about gaming the algorithm here.
1: Absolutely. We didn't bring up Big Tech this week, but hey, if we can game the al- algorithm and, you know, they're, they're kind of our shadow worst week this week because there there isn't one person to point to, but uh, I'd say Big Tech had a bad week too. So, Help us bring keep that going with uh by gaming the algorithm in our favor we're gonna we're gonna unabashedly say help us game the algor- algorithm in our own favor here so
0: all right and rich you're going camping right
1: not camping just going uh just oh, okay. out of town we were oh. camping we were going to be in death valley but unless you've been hiding in a cave somewhere for the last uh week you know that a really big storm has hit southern california and we were going to be down south in death valley we we decided Here's the thing, if you're gonna go to Death Valley, which I've done many, many times, if rain is predicted in the driest place in the world, um, you really wanna be careful because when rain happens there, even if it's a small amount, up in the hills, you can often get flash flooding, it takes out roads. We were gonna go last year, had had to postpone that trip because the roads were all washed out. I would just say, Anything I learned about the desert is if it, if it's raining somewhere even twenty miles away, it may not be good for you here. So we decided, eh,
0: let's 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 go somewhere else. So, yeah. Well, uh, enjoy the hot tub.
1: Thank you, thank you very much.
0: All we'll right, see, see you next right. time. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California.